Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com slash adapt. Canada's real estate market was one of the safest bets you can make when investing in a pre-pandemic world. But how will residential and commercial housing and property fare in a post-pandemic world where people are rethinking where they live and work? I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're joined by Murtaza Haider, professor of real estate management at Ryerson's University's Ted Rogers School of Management and a columnist at the Financial Post. He joined me to discuss commercial real estate, a rethinking of the suburbs, and how the pandemic will affect rural and urban markets across Canada, which saw a record decline in home sales and listings in April. What's your reaction to the pandemic's impact on housing so far? As is the case with most economic recessions, housing sales and prices do not walk in tandem, or at least the magnitudes are different. Just like job losses uh, in recession, you see humongous decline in sales, very large noticeable declines, as is the case with Toronto with 67 to 70% decline year over year sales in April. But prices, housing prices are like wages. They are sticky. They do not decline by 50% to 30%. And in our case, as we see, at least for the greater Toronto area, housing prices have remained stable, even the average prices. So if you were to standardize the type of housing, you say, well, you know, I'm going to compare apples to apples and I'm going to keep the constant quality, constant size of housing that is similar in quality and size. If you compare their prices, In fact, they went up in April slightly in 2020 compared to 2019. So the bottom line is don't expect the prices to have a precipitous decline just because you see a precipitous decline in the number of sales. Right. So that slowdown isn't going to have an immediate impact on price. No. And the, the, the other thing is the listings are down because when the listings are down, which means that there's fewer products available to purchase. So not only the sales have gone down, now there are fewer products for purchase. And even if there's a decline in the demand for housing, they're still chasing, but those who are interested in buying are chasing even a smaller subsample of housing available to buy. And therefore, from a competition point of view, the competition remains intense because the product on the market is is much smaller in, 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 in content in numbers than before. So um, now how long will this last? It could last for an unpredictable period. It all depends upon how quickly the market recovers. Now, in the past, when we have economic recession, and usually we have come out of it in two or three quarters, um, but this is not an economic recession. This is caused by a pandemic, and by all accounts, we don't expect a, a vaccine for it this year, maybe not even next year. And then the experts are telling us that even with the vaccine, as is the case with measles, we may not be able to eradicate COVID-19, which means that we will be living with it for a very long time. So the question then becomes how quickly we will be willing to embrace the risk and say, you know what, this is it. Life must go on. We will not remain in hiding for an extended undisclosed period. 
we will live, we will learn to live with COVID-19 and resume economic activity. And if that were to happen, this would happen probably starting in June and July and, and things would start to pick up by the end of this year, unless something drastically different happens. And therefore, one would expect the prices, housing prices to actually be a slightly higher this time around next year if the economic activity resumes as is expected. Right. The classic supply and demand equation there. Now, Canada's housing market has been considered a pretty safe bet. People have been calling for it, the bubble to burst, if you will, and that just hasn't happened due in large part to both immigration. We're getting a lot more people in Canada and jobs. The job market has been good. People are still employed. Now, the pandemic's effect on immigration remains a bit of a question mark, but jobs have definitely taken a massive hit so far. Two million jobs lost in April another 8 million Canadians have applied for the individual emergency response benefits with the government. How safe is the real estate market given these two factors as you're looking to the post-pandemic world? In the post-pandemic world, I see um, job losses to be large and and, and remain as such. Uh, A lot of people who have been laid off um, will be called back to work once the economy resumes, but many will not. So you start thinking through it. For example, the restaurant industry tells us that they had um, about 800,000 job losses because of COVID-19. And they also expect about one in three restaurants that are closed today will never open or reopen, which means that some of those layoffs will be permanent. So if you think through the kind of jobs that will be lost permanently, you come to the conclusion that they are not going to be white-collar service-oriented, knowledge economy jobs. People are working from home, actually. People with uh, computers and and, and, and information technology are putting in more hours now than they were before. Uh, So there's no uh, expectation of job losses happening on the knowledge economy side of it. The job losses expected to be bigger uh, in magnitude will be on the industries that are service industries, such as restaurants and and hospitality. And, And the question that I ask myself, If someone is a daily wage worker or someone who is working on the lower income strata, are they owners or or renters? And my assumption is that they're predominantly rental households. So the bigger impact of job losses would not be on the owner-occupied housing. I would expect to be larger on the rental housing such that people would lose jobs. And then as they have been laid off, they would not be able to go back. And if they are renters, they would not be able to pay rent. I expect rents to be more showing more fluctuation, more variance in the next six months than housing prices. Now, what could that mean for condos? I know a lot of renters do live in condo units, especially in Canada's major cities. What do you think this will mean for condo prices? There's been some indications that they have not been as strong as single family homes. Yes. So condos have obviously been seen as an investment vehicle. Remember, when the Great Recession happened in 2007-8, some established channels of investments, they just disappeared. The people had lost confidence. So people are not investing in the equity market in the way they were doing it in the, in the past. So they found a refuge in, in, in uh, housing markets and started investing in residential real estate as an investment tool rather than investing in equities or, or fixed income products. With that in mind, when you look at condominiums and you ask yourself, condos also have a significant portion of renters, but these are renters who are paying in excess of $2,500 for for a typical one-bedroom unit. And and they are not the ones who are likely to be facing long-term job losses. 
the bulk of renting happens in purpose-built rentals, right? So if you look at Toronto, for instance, the majority of renters are in purpose-built renter buildings. And these buildings, they are no condos, they are just in rental. Everybody's in the rental household. And then um, another big component of housing is the government-assisted housing by Toronto Community Housing Corporation, 50,000 units in Toronto. So so you should think about it. I think condominiums will be hit slightly, primarily because if there is any truth to the fact that foreign home buyers are investing in Canada's housing and in Toronto's case, or in big cities' case, they're investing in uh, condominiums and renting them out. That would slightly face a downward pressure on it. But the bulk of the uh, job loss impact on rental housing would not be on the condominium side, given that people would have stable sources of income, those who are renting in condominiums, but should have a bigger impact on purpose-built rental cohorts because they sometimes are more likely to be in precarious jobs or jobs where one would expect more layoffs as as a result of COVID-19. What about the impact of Airbnb? Obviously, hospitality and tourism has dried up. In some cities, there are questions about how many condo units are investor vehicles by people that are turning around and renting them for Airbnb. How do you think that will affect the condo market? So for Airbnb, I'm assuming um, my uh, my underlying assumptions are the following. I believe there'd be less of travel to them in the future and not just this year but maybe for a few years. Airbnb customers are often um, families traveling so they want to rent a condo or, or rather than a hotel room. They are budget travelers. I expect all of these segments to slow down and, and a loss of cancellations for Airbnb hosts. Now if you are an Airbnb host and uh, first of all, you look at the changes in government regulations. The government regulations changes meant that you cannot have investment properties anymore and then rent them out into Airbnb. That There were certain restrictions put in place uh, where that kind of use of units was prohibited. Once it's prohibited, those units are then returned to long-term rental. And now with COVID-19, I would believe that if a unit could be rented in for long-term rental, there will be an increase in the supply of rental long-term rental units as a result of COVID-19, because they would not be available on Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms, which means that an excess of supply for rental units should have a further downward pressure on rents in the future. I'm sure a lot of tenants will be happy to hear that, especially in the major centers where rents have been absolutely skyrocketing over the past several years. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of supply. We, we, we have higher rents in cities like Toronto, Vancouver, not in Montreal, but mostly in Toronto and Vancouver, primarily because of our inability to build as much rental housing as was needed. So it was a supply-driven challenge that we created for ourselves. There are lots of reasons as to why we were not able to build enough housing, but um, the reason rents went up is because we were not building enough rental housing. Do you think, though, if rents are coming down with no really new supply on board, what does that say about that supply argument? I think the new supply is going to take a back seat now. The most builders will think it twice. Uh, there are two types of constructions you can do. You can build purpose-built rentals, and the, the mechanics for those, the financial incentives for those are still not good enough so that one would expect a very big increase in purpose-built rentals, especially on the affordable side. But on the other side, through condominium construction, and then as a, as a secondary use of those condominiums as, 
as rental properties, I think uh, many builders will be looking at their ability to close the deals because at the moment, if you are constructing a unit, all you have is a deposit and some installments. So the supply side, I think the housing stocks should be moderated a bit for a few more months and the supply should be a little little constrained given the uncertainty. I would assume that the supply side will be weaker in the next 12 months or so. Now, shifting gears to talk a little bit about rural areas, what do you think the pandemic will mean for smaller centers? Will they make a bit of a comeback if people are able to continue working from home? Perhaps people are looking to get out of the city after several months being trapped in a in a smaller place. What are your predictions there? So I think um, there is good, this is good news uh, for smaller towns who are at the periphery of urban centers. So these satellite towns at the periphery, some may call it edge cities, could benefit. Um, and I'm working from the assumption that residents of those small towns, rural towns, are looking for new neighbors. Um, if they're not, then this would be a nuisance for them. But if you strictly think about it, what is happening right now is that people are cooped up in their places of residence. If you're in a suburban home with three or four bedrooms with a basement and a backyard, you have plenty of opportunity to be uh, be in your place without feeling claustrophobic. But if you are confined to a one-bedroom apartment or a studio, then your, your zone of influence is highly concentrated and you probably would have a greater urge to, to reconnect, go out and breathe some fresh air, especially if you're in a condominium with no, no balcony. So I'm assuming that the demand for suburban housing, and knowing that people will find greater acceptance for working from home, there will be a greater demand and acceptance for working from home, which means that the demand for suburban, peri-urban, and rural homes will should increase primarily because employers are finding out now that their knowledge economy workers are equally productive, if not more, given the flexibility they enjoy by being working from home, even in the constrained environments that they are now. And that's why people like Zillow and firms like Twitter, their understanding and acceptance of working from home or telework or telecommute, as they call it in transportation literature, that acceptance is emerging fast. And I think um, it will be a very, very good thing for those remote communities that were desiring more taxpayers, that is, that they were desiring people to relocate because they, rural properties or rural areas have a challenge of depopulation. People, their populations have been declining as people have been converging to big cities. So this reversal through telework may be a good way of sustaining the tax base of these smaller rural communities. At the same time, it, it has an opposite effect on, on the commercial real estate in the urban core. That was my next question. You know, if, if everyone is working from home and we've arranged our cities and our country generally on people commuting into downtown cores for these office jobs, what's going to happen to all that commercial real estate space? Are companies still going to need that office space? So that's where I'm, I'm most concerned about, primarily because I think there will be a realization, not in the distant future, that there may be lots of redundancy of space in the urban core office real estate, primarily because it's not just working from home that is the new realization. But given that COVID-19 is not going away this summer or this winter, 
uh, we will be living with these situations for a very long time. So we will adapt. And one of the adaptations would be in public transit, which means that we will not be able to pack people like sardines in subways in the morning peak period. You will not be able to have those crowded subway platforms where people are spilling off the platform into the staircases onto the next platform. So all of that has to change because of these social distancing requirements. You will not be able to sit right next to another person on a subway or a go train. So if you think about places like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, let's just think about Toronto. In the morning peak period, 70% of the people who come and work in downtown Toronto arrive there by public transit. And if public transit ability to carry all those millions of people to half a million jobs in downtown Toronto is constrained because of social distancing, then you have a reduced, significantly reduced capacity for public transit. You already have your roads on beyond capacity. You can't get more people on roads. So at the end of the day, people will find it very difficult, even if they want to work from office, to get to the office given the restrictions in the transportation system. So now you will have you are a commercial tenant in a, in a in a big office building, paying fifty, seventy five hundred dollars per square foot for a for a nice double uh, A triple A building, and then suddenly you realize that half of your workforce either cannot get to the work, or you are forced to put these new barriers, reconfigure your own office space, your not only forced to think outside of the box, you're now being forced to think out of outside of the cubicle because you're not going to be able to put cubicles. And if you have cubicles, you're worried about the shared ventilation, shared breathing, shared air conditioning and HVAC systems. And when you add in all these costs to keep people safe, you may realize that you're better off keeping them at home, working from home. And all of this, the net effect of all of this, that you may have um, a redundancy in office or, uh, space in urban core. So my advice to those uh, landlords who hold these big real estate assets is to start thinking in terms of reconstructing that space. Maybe you identify if, if this happens and if this really happens that your tenants are not going to renew next year or the year after, then you start thinking of reconfiguring the building, not just a floor space, but you maybe turning some some floors into residential or maybe taking the entire building, moving tenants to another building that you hold and turn the entire building into residential. And this way you can increase the supply of residential space, which is another desirable goal for cities like Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, while at the same time avoiding the pitfall of losing rents altogether. So some big changes on the office space side. What about for retail real estate owners? Obviously, this has been a particularly challenging time for smaller shops and restaurants, as you touched on earlier um, the Restaurants Canada predicts that up to one third of restaurants could close their doors permanently. How is that going to affect retail real estate in cities across the country? I think retail um, employment is, is the biggest concern these days for me. I think a lot about it and see how would we, we deal with the challenge primarily because some of these jobs will not return. And you ask yourself, how many bars does downtown Toronto need? If you look at downtown Toronto, there's a big supply of restaurants, a big supply of bars, a big supply of hospitality and tourism-related outlets. And they would have to justify their existence. Uh, they have been you know, plugging along. They've been, their profits have not been great, but lacking a disruption, they were not thinking of other choices. But now they have been disrupted. And all those retail outlets, especially restaurants, that were at the margin of profitability before COVID-19, they will take the bold step and say, we were hardly profitable from before and we will not continue. Now, then if this were to happen, think about it, 
the, the you will have a large number of storefronts uh, that will be boarded up. It's not that if I am a restaurant owner and I cannot continue to run my business, I close my restaurant. It's not that my landlord would be able to say, well, there's an application from five other people who would like to take up this space. So if I shut my business down, the landlords have to realize that the number of people or businesses interested in occupying that space at the same rent, that number is also shrinking very fast. So in the long run, or in the short run at least, we may face the prospect of a large number of retail outlets closing. And the streets and facades that we very much love and that that define our city, you know, the downtown streets, the downtown retail space and the restaurants, if every other store or every third store is boarded up, it would be a very tough situation for those, not only those who have lost their jobs, but it would actually change the face of our city. So they would not be as attractive as we are used to. So we really need to think creatively. I think what the landlords have to do is that instead of waiting for their tenants to plead forgiveness, if you are a commercial landlord, you go out to your tenant and say, tell me how we can make this work. Tell me how we can last for 2020. We'll worry about next year later, but tell me how can you and I, you being my tenant and I being the landlord, how do we work this thing out without disruption so that we are able to sustain 2020? And then we'll start worrying about what happens next next year. It does indicate that massive change in the fabric of what a downtown core could look like if we are going to be seeing a lot of vacant storefronts, vacant spaces. Zooming out on the bigger picture, how do you see the pandemic affecting these overall trends towards urbanization that have been going on for a long time now? How do you think it's going to change how we design our cities in the future and where people are interested in living? So the other day I was thinking that Aristotle wrote that man is a social animal, right? Like we need to socialize. And and that's what everybody else, all of my planning and architecture friends tell me, the man is a social animal. Working from home will not work because people need to socialize. Aristotle found it thousands of years ago. I said, yes, he did, but was he really thinking about cities of 7 million and 10 million, because at that time, even Athens was a city of a couple of thousand people, right? So perhaps what you know, Aristotle might have meant is that manage a social animal, don't be an island, you know, socialize with five or 10 neighbors you have, or maybe 100 people would make a crowd. But certainly this modern urbanism that we have now with a city like Toronto, with a downtown with half a million jobs and 2.7 million people living in the city of Toronto, on a, on a land area of 250 square mile or worse being Manhattan, the millions and millions of people on a very small parcel. And then you go on the list of Chicago's of the world and, and Berlin and London. You ask yourself, is there, are there diminishing returns to density? The densification of the place, what we call in economics, the agglomeration economies, are there diminishing returns to it? Could it be that there's uh, the more the merrier, the higher the density, the higher the agglomeration? As in, in there's no end to this and you will be just even more productive? And the answer is no, not really. Because the way we have urbanized, we failed on two very critical elements. And one is housing affordability. Every great city that we think about, New York, London, Chicago, Toronto, Vancouver, they have failed miserably on housing affordability because the desirability of place outpaces the ability of the place to, to supply new housing and at an affordable level. The second is transportation. 
Um, these cities are congested. Um, you know, they say you cannot avoid, you cannot avoid debt and taxes. But if you live in a big city, you cannot avoid debt, taxes, and congestion. So you ask yourself, wh- where is the next step? Do we just blindfoldedly continue urbanizing the way we have? Or we just realize and say, no, they are diminishing returns to density. They are diminishing returns to agglomeration economies. And perhaps through telework or telecommuting, we can have more reasonable future, urban futures, um, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by Harold Sensdale. Harold founded the first graduate urban planning program in Canada. It was in the 50s that he founded the urban planning program in, at McGill University. He wrote, Suburbs are the Cradle of Civilization. And, and I think perhaps this is now a time for us to take a second look at suburbs. He had a very pejorative view of this, uh, the uh, suburban living. And I think now with COVID-19 and, and being stuck at home, working from home, maybe there's merit in having just easing all that pressure that we have built. I had been working in downtown for years, and when I leave the uh, Union Station um, to walk to my work at Young and Dundas, um, the morning peak period, pedestrian crowding, forget about transit or automobile crowding, there's not enough space on the sidewalks for people to walk. So you say, how far can you extend this kind of living? Uh, is there a way to rethink? You, you can find communities that allow you to live healthy, prosperous, enjoyable lives closer to nature without having this desire that everybody should find their 500 square feet in downtown. Murtaza, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking to you. That was Murtaza Haider, Professor of Real Estate Management at Ryerson University. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business. And as always, thank you to our team. Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yudula Hussain, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.